Hey, everybody, it's Tuesday. That means we're in our third week of the series that we're calling Shema. We've been studying this Old Testament prayer from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We've already talked about the word listen. It says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Ross, we've covered listen, we've covered Lord. And today we're going to cover a word that, you know, maybe is surprising for people to think that this would be at the very center of one of the world's oldest religion religions. The word is love. Yeah, it says, love the Lord your God. And um, interestingly, because when we think of the word love, uh, what comes to mind probably in our culture is some kind of an affection or some kind of feeling. Um, Love is an emotion that gets turned on and gets turned off, and it can be manipulated by people, by circumstances. But the word love in Hebrew that we're looking at is different. As we do these word studies, the word is ahava. And it's not just a feeling or emotion. That doesn't mean we don't have feeling or emotion toward God. It doesn't mean we don't have affection for God or we have you know, love for God in that emotional sense. But this word is deeply connected with action. Um, the root of the word in the Hebrew language is actually to give. And so literally the word is to love means to give yourself. And so this is the kind of love that it's not just something that you feel, it's something that you give, something that you do. We're not saying that a love for God, an emotional love for God, is off limits by a long shot. The Bible talks about that, and worship brings that out. But there's something more here that most people probably don't associate with love, or they might when they stop and think about it more deeply, that love is an action word that has to do with uh, the decisions that we make. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, especially people who are maybe newer to Christianity or just trying to figure out if they're interested in this whole thing, you know, the God of the Bible. I think a lot of people, when they think about God, they don't think about love. They think about rules. They think about duties. They think about obedience. They think about maybe even they think about, a you know, a, their dad or some religious figure that was a little bit harsh. And so I think a lot of people reject religion. They re- reject God. They reject the church. There's a lot of church hurt out there. They reject the church because they didn't feel love. They didn't sense, they didn't get a sense of love. But it's interesting that all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, it's this this prayer or this pledge of allegiance, really, is what we've been calling it for the Jewish people, is it's telling us to love. I mean, let's let's make sure to note that. It's telling it's saying to us that we must love God, but really, Ross, it's rooted in what we looked at last week. It's rooted in Yahweh. It's rooted in the Lord, and that the Lord himself is love. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says this. It's really simple. It's one of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible. It just says, God is love. The point there is that this isn't like something God does or whatever, but it's, an, it's, her, it's inherent in his very nature. It's not like God says, well, today I'm going to love, tomorrow I don't feel like loving. But it's inherent in his, in his very nature. So God shows us what genuine love is like, because he's going to always uh, reflect that. Even when God does things that are hard for people, it's out of love for them. And so it's not just explaining love. The Bible doesn't just tell us what love is like or what God's love is like, but we see God's love on display uh, throughout the Bible. 
uh, is seen in his covenant relationship with his people. He binds himself loyalty to his people. He's seen in his constant protection and his guidance for them. Is seen in his heart of forgiveness. We're going to see later on how the greatest expressions of God's love, what that what that's all about. And, and so here's the thing is like, because God is love, it's not like he loved his people because they earned it or because they said, well, they're they're worth they're worth loving. Now, his genuine love, his affection for them originates not from who they are, but from who he is. It's who God has always been. And that means his love never changes because it's inherent in his character. And that's something that we can really, you know, uh, pin our hopes on. Yeah, we see that in the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah 31, long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love. I have drawn you to myself. And if you understand the Old Testament story, you would say, wait, that seems surprising because over and over, you know, the people of Israel rejected God. They, they showed that they were, that they mistreated God. They didn't obey him. They didn't follow him. They, they you know, kind of like a, like a spurned parent. He just kept just getting his feelings hurt by his people. And yet he says, I have loved you. And Deuteronomy 4 says, because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless their descendants, and he personally brought you out of Egypt with great display of power. So we see this, you know, this covenant love of God in spite of the people of Israel and and their mess-ups over and over. That demonstrates that the the love of God, he doesn't give up on his people. Um, This is inherent in who he is again. And we see that you know this it takes shape in his action toward us too, because he rescued, he's provided, he's he he stays with people, and this is this is why he put them through discipline. He never cut them off, but he did want to perfect them and purify them, because even his discipline was an expression of his love for them. He ultimately really wants. Uh, really, it's part of who he is. He wants to love us. That's the starting point of the Shema, really, uh, to understand we love God. He loved us first because that God's nature is love, and so he uh, calls for us to love him in response. And one of the most, you know, maybe most striking verses in the Bible comes in the very first chapter, Genesis one twenty-seven, where it says that God created us human beings in his image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them and so part of what that means that we're created in the image of god is that we should reflect the love that god himself demonstrates for us but russ i guess maybe that's hard for some people to hear because they say well wait a second am i so am i supposed to am i supposed to love you know, the people in my world who keep screwing up over and over and over again, right? If I'm trying to reflect the love of God, he was so patient with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Am I supposed to be that patient? So that doesn't, that doesn't seem loving. I mean, it seems like we're, we should be disciplining people that we love. Like, how does that whole thing work out? It's interesting because we do see that we have this capacity to love. Now, we the, the problem is that we're not perfect like God. We don't have perfect moral character like God. So we have a hard time figuring out a lot of those questions, a lot of those boundaries. We'll go too far one way or the other. We'll maybe discipline too harshly, or we'll come back and not discipline enough or whatever out of love. 
because we're human, we don't have this eternal quality of, of, of our love being inherent in our being, but it means we have the capacity to do that. And so we mirror God. We're gonna, we, we can mirror God in how we do it and how we do these things. And so we're, we are able to, to love others. We are able to love God because we reflect God. And so, you know, there's going to be some things that we're going to figure out. There's going to be a lot of expressions of love that, that we're going to have to learn from how God tells us in the Bible how to express that. There's, there's some great, you know, wisdom in the Bible about how to love other people and where that comes from and how to sustain it. And so uh, as human beings, the point is here, I don't think the point is to say, oh, there's some something that we're going to mess up with over and over again. But I think the point here is to say we have the capacity to do something that reflects and mirrors the very nature of God himself. Okay, so let's get specific about what this means, Ross, when it comes to loving God. Because, you know, we're reading the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, but in Deuteronomy 10, Moses gives us some, some more detail about how love goes beyond feelings, and it should be demonstrated in action toward God himself. It says in Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 and 13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And here's what he requires, only that you fear the Lord your God, that you live in a way that pleases him, love him and serve him with all your heart and soul, and you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. So it's like there's more... It's almost like Moses is now getting a little bit more specific. He's not talking about this in general terms, but he's saying, here's what it should look like. Fear, um, serve, obey, right? So help us to understand, you know, the person who's out there saying, I need a list. What does it actually mean for me to love the Lord? Now, let me get into some of those words because they don't seem like expressions of love, maybe. If you talk about fear, you know, that seems contrary to love, or it seems kind of like in our society today, there's this twisted form of love, codependency or whatever. But fear of God means, just means to re- reverence Him deeply, to honor and revere Him deeply. It doesn't mean that like, oh my gosh, I have to live cowering that God is going to strike me or something like that. So how could I love that person? No, it means that God is worthy of our ultimate respect. It talks about living in a way that pleases him, love him, serve him. These are these are active expressions of love. It's not just a heart that's emotional toward God. It's not just an affection toward God, even though those things are appropriate. If we love God like it says to in the Shema, then we put our love for God into action. And that's what this is saying. It's calling God is calling his people to to show their love to show their devotion by serving him by obeying him by by living the way that he tells us to live which by the way it says at the very end of verse 13 that God gives his commands and decrees for our good so this is an act of love that God has given like a parent you give your child some structure you help your child know you know what to do and God gives us his commands and his decrees for our good because he loves us And so our way to love him back is to appreciate that and to put that into practice. Yeah, I think this is what confuses people today. I think especially in American culture today is parenting is a good example of this is is we think that to love our kids means that we're their friends, we let them do whatever we want. But the Bible in Proverbs actually says that if if you fail to discipline your kids you hate your children. That's that's how the Bible describes it is 
not disciplining your kids is equivalent to hating them. So it's the opposite of what maybe modern day parenting gurus tell us to do is just love them, let them figure out who they are, let them let them set their own boundaries, their own rules, their own gender. I mean, all this stuff today, it's just crazy how far we've go- we've gone with all this. So so I think it's probably maybe a little bit confusing to someone who's saying, wait a second, is this a bait and switch? Because you just started this whole podcast saying that at the very center of this prayer, this this age-old prayer, religious Jewish, Jewish prayer, is the word love. But no, hold on, you're talking now about obedience. You're talking now about fear and respect and commands and serving. And that's exactly what I don't want to do. That's exactly... That's exactly why I can't stand religion, because I want love. And again, in today's culture, we define love as let me do whatever I want to do. And and religion is selling me something else. Whatever you want to call it, it's selling me a bunch of rules that, that feel restrictive to me. Well, here's one way that I think our listeners might help them to understand what's going on here is that we all have relationships. If you were, say, if you're in the military or say if you're in on a football team, you play in a sports team, then there's a lot of structure. And yet in that setting, you know, we have a great deal of love for that coach. I mean, we might, if, he, if he's not, you know, totally abusive or whatever, we might have a great deal of love for that commanding officer. And yeah, we respect them. We honor them. And that's part of the love. We see that, oh, that this coach has been so good for our team and so good for me, and I've grown so much, and we've got this unity. And so I have a great deal of honor, respect, affection, uh, and really love for that, for that individual who provided that kind of leadership. So I don't think it's opposed to the... Uh, we sometimes can think it's opposed, but it didn't really oppose. I think we've experienced, all of us, most of us, some way that love takes shape in the form of respect in the form of obedience. I want to do what this person says because I have that much regard for them. Yeah, I think the marital relationship is another great example for any listener who's married out there. You know, for you to for you to love your spouse doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. It doesn't mean that there are no duties. It doesn't mean that you you don't serve. You know, loving your spouse spouse means you respect them, means you serve them. It means that you obey kind of the rules that you maybe you don't think of obedience in terms of a marriage, but it you know you, that you're honoring the boundaries that you've set up. You don't, but you don't do it because um, because of future punishment. You do it because because that's what love is. Love isn't just do whatever you want. I mean, if your spouse came to you and said, "You know, if you love me, you'll let me do whatever I want." Wait a second, who where who says that? Where's that written down? Of course, that's not true. And so, for us to think that that's how a relationship with God should go is it just doesn't even make logical sense. So, the difference between all these, you know, analogies, earthly analogies, is that. In our relationship with God, there's not an equivalence. You know, in a, in a relationship with your spouse, there's like we're on the same, you know, we're both made in God's image. And so we're, we're there's equal footing there. And even in a re- relationship with your kids, they're still human beings just like you. They're younger. So you have a different responsibility, but you're still two broken people who do relationships not perfectly. But in our relationship with God, 
there isn't an equivalence. God is a different kind of being than we are. God is creator. God is in charge. God is the Lord. But see, to me, Ross, that's what makes this even more shocking is that the God of the Bible would use a word like that for us, that it, it makes sense to me that God would tell us that we should love him. But what's mind-blowing, the more you understand this, is that God would say he loves us. He doesn't owe that to us, but yet the Bible says he is love, and he does love us, and he does forgive, and he does extend grace when he could just zap us and and start all over, right? But th- that's not how God treats us. That's for sure. Really, when we understand that about him, about his nature toward us, that's part of what generates our love for him in response. Okay, and so then let's go to this passage that we're going to keep coming back to throughout this series. It's from Matthew 22. This is where Jesus is is being questioned by the religious leaders of his day. They said, "What's the greatest commandment in in all the, of all the commandments?" And and his response was with the Shema. Well, that was the first part of his response. He said, "You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind." So that's the Shema. But then he adds this. He he says, this is the first and greatest commandment, but he adds a second commandment, and he says the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is where I think he's pointing out to them that the love that is called for in the Shema, which is loving God, should naturally then mean that we love our neighbor, that and, and the loving your neighbor was a kind of a more obscure reference in the Old Testament. You know, love Lord your God was Deuteronomy 6. They all understood that one. But it's like Jesus elevates, I think it might be like Leviticus 19 or 20. He elevates this other commandment about loving your neighbor that just seems to be sort of randomly stuck in there in these all these commandments. And Jesus is elevating that to this new, new level. He says, this is equally important, love your neighbor. So what he's saying is that being in proper relationship with God, the God of love, means that we're going to extend his kind of love to the people around us. Right, because that's the very nature of love, seen by God himself. And so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most of us love ourselves a lot. I think I, we, we invest a lot in ourselves. We, we give ourselves all kinds of attention to our wants and our needs, and, and we're kind of like making sure that that where our needs are met. And Jesus says, you know, if you love your neighbor, it should be with that same kind of attention and care, because that reflects then the, the kind of love that God has um, for us. It's interesting, he's talking to the, the religious experts of the day. They would have been scrupulous in praying the Shema every single day. And so he's going to get in their attention. He says, maybe you think you love God, but here's another thing to think about. Here's something that maybe you haven't thought about. How about love your neighbor as you love yourself? John gets more specific about this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says this, If someone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people that we can see, then how can we love God whom we cannot see? So John is he's calling out, Something that I think a lot of people in modern day churches would maybe understand is this this hypocrisy in the church where we we've we've got this outward form of religion. We're really good at religious stuff, 
singing the songs, going to church, going to Bible study, whatever. But but when it comes to the way that we interact with human beings, you know, and he's talking about your fellow believer, but this would also extend to unbelievers, that we just we we don't we don't demonstrate like the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so it's like it's kind of like in the church we have this we have these two different standards that we apply. One one standard we apply to ourselves, but then an, another standard we apply to someone else. And a lot a lot of this I think in the modern church probably has to do with being really judgmental to people who are different than us. But but Ross, I think it's probably important for us to also talk about the fact that this isn't saying again, this isn't saying anything goes. So maybe help us to understand this because I think I think the modern church can take this and go too far with this and say, oh, in the church, we need to love one another, which means, you know, kind of this love wins mentality, anything goes. So where do we draw the line between, uh, like, what it, what exactly is John talking about here? Because we're not talking about being a woke church, are we? No. I mean, part of it is understanding love really has the person's best interest in mind and at heart. And so God has given us a sense, a framework, really, of wh- how life works and what life matter, how life matters. And so to love people would include wanting to see them succeed and thrive based on God's pattern, based on what God says is, ru- is real and true, and saying that, hey, if you, if you aren't uh, living that way, then you're not ultimately going to experience God's best, and you're not going to experience the way you were created to be. So... Um, there's going to be practical ways that we can say, hey, I love you enough to, to, to help you get there. Now, it's not a judgmental. It's not, again, you're, saying, you're not saying you don't live up, you fail, et cetera, so you're done. But it's coming alongside people. It's helping them. It's sharing with them um, the love of God. It's sharing the message of salvation with them. It's mentoring them. It's uh, showing them in practical ways how we could meet the material needs that they have. But it's not just anything goes. But his point is, is that, you know, this is hip- where hypocrisy enters in, and Jesus was always dealing with hypocrisy from religious people, because it's really hard to measure externally whether you love God or not. It's pretty easy to measure externally whether you love people or not. So it's easy to put on a front, say, oh, I'm loving God, look at me, blah, 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 I'm going to church every Sunday. But you can't fake it with whether you love people or not. You can't fake it with whether you're paying attention to people and meeting uh, them where they're at and and working alongside them and helping them grow and uh, treating them with compassion and with with care. That's just not not fakeable. That's why he says, look, it's easy to be a liar in church and say, oh, I love God. Oh, look at me. But I don't love people. I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah, Paul, I think Paul put some teeth into this in Galatians chapter 6, and this is right after... Galatians 5, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and then the works of the flesh, and you know, basically saying that as followers of Jesus, we have the Spirit in us, so we should have His fruit, and so much of that fruit is relational stuff, love, joy, peace, that kind of stuff. And, and what he says in chapter 6 then is, okay, well, what do you do in the church when another believer is overcome by some sin? Now, let's just pause there for a second. And acknowledge that some people would say, well, there is no such thing as sin. Let them do whatever they want. God doesn't have rules and boundaries because he loves us. That would be going too far. So so 
I think Galatians 6, 1 and 2 is really helpful for us because number one, it says there is there is such a thing as sin. And then it's telling us, okay, what do we do then? What does it look like to love another believer who is overcome by sin? So do we just like ignore it? Do we just turn the other cheek? Do we, because we love them, do we not make them uncomfortable? No, it says this, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. So this is, I think this is just really helpful for people so they don't misunderstand where we're going with this, is that loving your neighbor means, again, means anything goes. No, it, it means that you really do want the best for them and that you're willing to speak truth and love to them, just like parents with kids, right? If if you fail to discipline your kids, that's equivalent to hating your kids. So so loving someone doesn't mean you don't discipline. It doesn't mean you don't speak out when they're really living in sin. But that that's different, Ross, than, you know, I, I, like superimposing this list of rules that I think a lot of churches have that just really aren't even in the Bible, right? And so that maybe there's the difference between between being willing to call out a sin and and just being like overly super judgmental. Yeah, you know, and I, I think about this as you explained this idea, Brian, of going to that person to offer the correction and help. I think, you know, even the secular world has a model of that. It's called an intervention. You know, and even the secular world says, hey, there's a time when somebody's life is out of control and people who love that person need to step in, intervene, and and have a conversation, a difficult, hard conversation with that person because they're ruining their life and they're ruining the lives of other people around them. I think maybe the secular world and the Christian world might disagree about maybe the nature of the kind of things that need to be intervened, but you know, I think everybody would even who would, would see that, hey, yeah, there's a time and a place when the loving thing to do is to step in and say something that needs to be said or do something that needs to be done in order to prevent someone from self-destruction. And biblically, the idea of sin is that, yeah, these are things that are self-destructive. They may not be as obvious or as um, egregious as, you know, something that we might intervene in addiction but they're important, nevertheless. And so that's what it takes, not just to call out judgment from a distance, but to come alongside and really love a person enough to walk through that process of change and development with them. You know, as we read the Old Testament, it's like God tried to do that with his prophets over and over. God sent his prophets to his people to try to get their attention, to to call them back to him. He just kept, he kept calling them back to him. He kept calling them back to him. But if God couldn't make them obey, if God couldn't make them make the right choice, then what makes us think that we can make someone make the right choice? So the loving thing to do is to gently and humbly help them back on the right path, but you can't force them back under the right path. God never forces us back onto the right path. In fact, that's really kind of the story. That's the story of the Bible is that over and over the people failed. The people couldn't keep the outward rules. And so God had to write the rules on their heart. God had to intervene in such a way that we could actually love. God had to do something drastically different the old way, well, what the Jewish people thought of the old way, the, the Mosaic law, the keeping the rules, the, 
the outward, the outside in type of religion failed over and over, and it still fails today. If if you try to clean up your act by your own strength on your own willpower, you've probably learned by now it doesn't work. And so that's why God implemented this plan that allowed us to actually love other people. It allowed us to follow this greatest commandment to love God and love other people. And the whole plan started with Jesus, that God the Father gave us Jesus. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible says it like this, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so Ross, maybe just help us connect the dots here that when you know, this climate, this watershed moment in history is when, when God sent Jesus to demonstrate the love of God in the most costly way. But then to, to, on top of that, then to, to give us the ability to actually do all the stuff we're talking about today. Right. Exactly. Now I noticed in there, just uh, the first thing is when it says he gave his one and only son, then that reminds me of the word ahava because we said the root of that, the Hebrew word of that is to give, to give oneself. And so that's what God exactly did for us. And it says he loved the world by giving. And here's the back story to, to this whole action, is that in the beginning, God created us for a relationship with him. God wanted us to experience intimacy with him. He wanted us to experience his perfect love and to love him in return and have this, this bond, this relationship between the creature and the creator. And the way the story went, it didn't go that way because he started out with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and having this relationship, but, but we chose to turn away from him, going all the way back to our first parents. To, to, we chose to disobey him, to disregard what God said was, was real and true. And so through our first parents, then back in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into the world. We all inherited that sin from them. We all practice it on our own. And so that separates us from God. That creates this chasm between us and God. This, this plan of God, his perfect plan for us, was not fulfilled. And there's something got in the way, our sin. And so this is why God says, look, I'm going to do something for you. You're, you're so lost. You're so separate from me. You're so needy that I want us to have relationship. So I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to demonstrate my love for you in the most costly way. I'm going to give my son. Yeah, a couple more famous verses to add to John 3.16, Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So nobody's exempt from this. We're we're all broken. We all fail to love, essentially. We all fail to to keep up our end of the deal, to be obedient to to the Shema. And then Romans 6.23 tells us the result. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what we earn by our inability to love God in people, what we earn is death. And, and Ross, that's, that's not just talking about physical death. It's talking about, more importantly, it's talking about spiritual death, that the price that we have to pay for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. But Jesus stood in our place, Romans 5.8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, to die in our place while we were still sinners. And so somebody had to pay the debt 
that we owed because of our sin. Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life. He really was able to love God and people the way that humans were supposed to. He was the only one to ever do that. And so he didn't owe a death to God because he never sinned. So when he went to the cross, he went to the cross in our place so that if we would trust in him, the Bible says that that God would forgive us, that God would grant us eternal life. Uh, again, just showing his love, right? That he, he, so basically his, God's love for us was fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that so that now, now let's bring this full circle, so that now, now that we're Christians, for those who are listening to this today who are Christians, who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, so what, what is it that's different about those people that allows us now to finally, finally be obedient to the greatest commandment, to love God and to love our neighbor? Well, there's a couple of things, really, because, you know, our, our sinfulness, our selfishness, has made that love, you know, sullied it. Even even the best people who love the most, who are still apart from Christ, that their love is tainted by selfish motives, and and it often goes wrong. But there's a couple of things. So because we are then in relationship with God, then we're awakened to this whole new idea of love, and so we have this appreciation for what God has done for us, and it shows it. It carries out in other people. But the but the main thing is here that is that there's an act by which we become new creations. We become new people. It's not just that our sin is forgiven. It's not just that we stand before the judge and we're declared not guilty because Jesus paid the price. But the Bible teaches that if anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation, that that God gives us a new nature, and God puts his Holy Spirit in us to give us the divine power to be able to love people and the motivation and the inclination to be to be able to love him and to love people. So this isn't just a judicial action where our sins are forgiven, but this is a renovation where our lives are remade and we're made into something new that gives us capacity that we never had before. Yeah, that's why Paul says in Galatians 5 that the Holy Spirit, remember the Holy Spirit is God. So God exists as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is is the God who dwells within us. So God dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Galatians 5.22 that the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. And here's the first, here's the first fruit, love. And so to go all the way back to the Shema, where, where God is speaking kind of at the maybe at the front end of his relationship with his covenant people, at the front end of that, he says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is one. You, you need to love him. So for hundreds of years, they were frustrated. The people of God were frustrated. And more importantly, God himself was frustrated because the people couldn't do it. They couldn't love because they didn't have the power from the inside to love. But then God the Father sent Jesus, who died on the cross, and then that opened up the way for anyone who receives him, who becomes a Christian, that the Holy Spirit then takes up residence in us, and from the inside of us, the Holy Spirit produces the love that we're learning about in the Shema. That finally, now, all these years later, finally we can do this. We can love God 
with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly, but we now have the capacity because the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. So, Ross, maybe we should end this episode because we're talking a lot. All of this hinges on on trusting in Jesus for salvation. The, the only way to get the Holy Spirit to move inside of us to produce love in all the other things is by trusting in Jesus for salvation. So maybe it would be helpful for us to end this episode by explaining to our listeners, for those who haven't ever done this before, so how do I do that? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, because that's really where the rubber hits the road. And that's a great response to this idea that God has demonstrated His love for us in the most costly way by sending His Son, by giving Him to us. So here's the thing. It starts with a recognition that there's something wrong. There's something wrong in my life with God. That I look around, I say, man, I don't really love God enough. I don't really love God like I should. I love other things first. I love a lot of other things more than I love God. And so looking around and say, you know what? I don't really love other people. Um, I'm looking, I'm pretty selfish. And, and however the ways are that that nature, that sinful nature is infecting me, and whatever the ways are that I have fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of obeying Him, then that becomes a problem, and I need that problem to be dealt with. So it's a recognition first, accepting my need, accepting the reality of my sin. And then it's simply a matter of then casting my hope in what Jesus has already done for me. Most religions say, hey, you've recognized you have a need. Well, let's get to work on that. You know, here's the 10, ten things you need to do to improve that, and then, then God will like you, or you'll be proved worthy before God. But no, the Bible says, no, I just come to the point of my need, and I, and I call out to the God who's already done everything that I need for me, who's already paid the price, who already covered my sin, and I call out to Him. And put my trust in him. So I'm going to say, Jesus, I know that you died on the cross to pay for all my sin, past, present, future. And so I'm trusting you and I'm asking you to come into my life and change me, forgive my sin, change me, make me right with God. I'm trusting you to do that as you said you would. And so I accept that gift today. I accept the gift and I'll start to to let it work out in my life. And then my life begins to change. So it's really a matter of acknowledging and believing, trusting in what Jesus has done and confessing with my mouth that, that this is the fact and say yes to Jesus, to say yes to him in prayer is typically the way we do that. But when I remember when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't say a prayer, but a prayer happened within me deep, deep within, far deeper than words could say. And so we typically say prayer is the way we respond to God this way, but again, it's a way of, the response is what matters, to say, I'm needy, God has done everything I need, Jesus paid it all, what he did is enough, and I accept that, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to make that my reality from now on by trusting in him. If you want to learn more about becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a Christian, everything that Ross just explained right there, take we encourage you to check out our pursuit series at pursuegod.org forward slash go. In fact, we would encourage you to go through that series with a Christian friend. Say, hey, would you walk through this series with me? And everything that Ross just explained is explained in topics four, five, and six of that series. So we encourage you to check that out. So that today was love. The meaning of the word love in Hebrew from the Shema 
Join us next week as we talk about the next word in the Shema. We're going to talk about the meaning of the word heart.